Let me start the sermon today by reading you a quote. I love this quote. I think it's, I don't know, there's just something about it. And I want to see if you respond the same way that I do. Um, It's uh, from the 50s, and I'll give you more details about who wrote it in a moment. But here, here is the note. It says, during the year 1957, I experienced, by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, and more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel that this has been granted through his grace, and he writes this in all caps, all praise to God. Does anyone know what this is from? I'd be curious. You don't have to. Anybody heard this? Okay, I'm not seeing any. No one's looking at me directly. Okay, so this is actually an insert uh, Oh, let me read more. Maybe this will help you. Okay. This album, all right, there's a, there's a clue. This album is a humble offering to him, an attempt to say thank you, God, through our work, even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues. May he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. Okay, I'll tell you. That was an excerpt from the liner in John Coltrane's album, A Love Supreme. And what a quote, Right? I think John Coltrane's words, sort of, if you've ever heard that album, like the riffs on his saxophone, they just resonate with so much thanksgiving, so much hope, and so much goodwill towards all human mind, humankind. And I think what we're reading here, his thoughts are actually a prayer. First of thanksgiving, you could hear that, all praise to God. And second, of blessing to anyone who would read those words or hear his music. A prayer that God would allow all who heard or read to experience what he describes as an awakening. An awakening that allowed him to do something in a way that he'd never done it before. And that thing was work. And it was a a crazy, powerful combination. Just to give you some idea, um, a love supreme is listed as number 47 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Uh, It's also, the manuscript for the album is one of the National Museum of American History's quote-unquote treasures of American history, and it's part of an elite collection at the Smithsonian Institution. In short, it's a great example of the immense good that can happen when faith intersects with work which is what we're exploring in this series. We took a break last week, but we're in a three-part series on work. And in week one, we talked about how work was designed to be really good for us. It was a blessing to us. It was supposed to bring life and purpose into our lives. And it was not a curse. It was something God gave to us as a gift. And then in week two, uh, we looked at how things sort of got messed up with work. And we read the story of the entrance of sin into the world and the corrupting effects that it had. So all of a sudden, work became something that's not necessarily received as a blessing, but rather something that humanity tries to use to get a sense of self-worth through productivity and success, but often, often also burns them out. And for others, work becomes a way to bring home a paycheck so they can enjoy real life but makes work into a pointless grind. And that's what can make work so physically and emotionally exhausting sometimes. 
And by work, I mean something that you do. You may not get paid for it, but that you look to uh, as a job to do in your life. So today we're going to look at another way to approach work. You know, these motivations, these other ones I talked about, the, the motivations to prove ourselves through work, to prove that we have some sort of self-worth, um, or where work just becomes a mean to an end so that we can do the things that we really would like to do, something that we put up, some, something that exhausts us. I think these motivations are what we would call sort of the work beneath the work. So we have the work that we do, and then the work beneath the work is the things that motivate us to do our jobs in life. Today we're going to look for another type of motivation that won't leave us burned out and that can open us up to really share ourselves with the people around us. So before I go any further, I want to give thanks to Tim Keller and Catherine Alsdorf, who wrote a book called Every Good Endeavor, which you can hear in the quote from John Coltrane. And that book was really helpful. Let's read our verse today. It's really short. This is Romans 12, verses 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, there's something in this verse that's meant to change the way that we see everything. You notice that it says, in view of God's mercy. Offer your bodies as living sacrifice. In view of God's mercy, live a different way. See things from a different perspective. Bring worship into being in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy is supposed to change, for Paul's readers, the way they interact with everything in their lives. And I think what Paul's referring to here is what we commonly refer to in theological circles, like when I was at seminary, as the gospel, right? Maybe you've heard that term. The gospel means what God has done. Literally, it's God's work. It refers to something that's been accomplished. So specifically, it refers to God's merciful act of giving himself so that everything in the world and in creation could be put right. So let me just talk about the gospel is not a theological idea. It's much more a report of something that has happened. So in ancient times, during the Roman Empire, when the emperor did something that he thought was really cool, he would send out heralds to all parts of his kingdom, and they would deliver the good news or the gospel to all of the people in the town square who could hear, and they would shout it out. Come hear the gospel of how awesome our emperor is. Hear the good news of what has happened. The gospel isn't a philosophy, it's not a perspective, it's an event. The gospel is good news. And in this case, the report is of what God has done through his death on the cross and his resurrection. That's his work. It's a report of his work. That's what the gospel is. It's good news, a report. And it was meant to have the power to cause people to reinterpret everything in their lives, including our relationship to work. So that's where we're going to end our series on work today. We started with how work is a good thing. <laughs> we moved to how work can get messed up, and now we're talking about how it can be redeemed and renewed. 
and the good news, the perspective that can be applied to work to make it different, to change the world. So let's look at this. In this view, through this lens of the gospel, the gospel has the power to revalue work. So we said in week one that God values all work. There's not high work and low work. Uh, And he himself, in the story of creation, is pictured as a gardener. His son is a carpenter. They do what what is traditionally considered menial work, working with your hands, getting dirty. Lower forms of work. Now, the work beneath the work tells us that sometimes or some types of work are, are better than others or more prestigious, have more value. Now, when I grew up, in my context, the work we did for God had more value if it was church work. In fact, uh, in the church I grew up in, people who did ministry work were said to have received a calling. Those folks had a call. No one else seemed to have a call. But if you were a pastor or you were doing full-time ministry, you had a call. Your work had more value. And as a result, some were called and others weren't. Some work was sacred and some work was secular. And sacred work was to be aspired to and all other forms of work were to be put up with as necessary, but less noble, but valuable because they funded the sacred work. But the gospel, the good news, doesn't allow for this type of distinction. The whole point of the work of God was that it was complete. It was all that was needed. The cross was God doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So right standing with God in view of his mercy would forever be based on his work, not our religious work. And as a result, in the light of the gospel... Since religious work does not earn any extra special favor with God, favor instead is given as a gift because of what God did, already the work that he'd done, then it can't be superior to any other type of work. It's just another opportunity that God puts before some some people. Martin Luther wrote about this. He was a famous Christian pastor, and he wrote this. It's pure invention that popes and bishops and priests and monks are called the spiritual estate, while princes, lords, artisans, farmers are called the temporal estate. That's his uh, sacred, secular way to put it. This is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy, yet no one need be intimidated by it. And that for this reason, all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is no difference among them. In other words, the view through the lens of the gospel, or in view of God's mercy is that all work is just as valuable as any other type of work. And it applies not just to religious work. So for modern people, the work beneath the work tells us that we find value not so much in religious work, but prestigious work. So while ancient monks may have sought salvation through their religious works, modern people seek a kind of salvation, a type of self-worth and self-esteem from career success. But the gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves and secure our own identity through work because we're already proven and secure because of what God has done. So the view from God's mercy affirms that we're loved so much that God's work was to sacrifice for us to secure our acceptance and our righteousness. Are you seeing how this works together? So Luther could write about those who trust in God through 
his work of the gospel, he wrote this, even, even their seemingly secular works are a worship of God and an obedience well-pleasing to God. Or as it's described in our passage today, true and proper worship. And he continued, why should I not therefore freely, joyfully, with all my heart and with eager will, give myself as Christ to my neighbor, just as Christ offered himself to me, since through faith I have an abundance of all good things. And so in view of the gospel, in view of the mercy of God, all work, all work can be true worship, whatever it is. All work can be sacred. Plowing a field, hitting keys on a keyboard, picking up trash, whatever it is that you do has value, can be true worship. And that's not all. The gospel has the power to repurpose work. So here I think it's important to recognize that we all have a story that we're living, every one of us. And by that I mean we all have a sense of the way things ought to be. We all have a sense of what is in the way of things being that way and how we can overcome those things so that we can experience life the way it should be. And these perspectives are known as worldviews. So we define the problem and solutions in different ways. So for Plato, thousands of years ago, the problem was the body and its passions. For Marx, it was economic forces. For Freud, it was repression of our desires for pleasure. For conservatives, it's liberals and their desire to let anything go and have no healthy sense of accountability. For liberals, it's regressive and restrictive and heartless approach to social conventions and policy. We all have a story. We all have a worldview. And every story has good guys and bad guys. The view through God's mercy, however, is unique. And it seems to me that all major worldviews place the focus of the world's problems on some part of creation. It's only the view through God's mercy that locates the problem with the world, not in any part of the world or a particular group, but in the sin that corrupts all people. And it locates the solution in God's grace. In view of God's mercy, there aren't heroes and villains in the world. We're all corrupted. And if there are villains and heroes, we would have to include ourselves in both of those lists because we're also being renewed. And the implications of this worldview, as Tim Keller puts it this way, he says, without an understanding of the gospel, we'll either naive, we'll, we will be either naively utopian or cynically delusioned. We will be demonizing